0: We'll read this, and then we'll pray, okay? Guys, let me, let me just say this. This is a weighty matter today. This is a doctrine that will divide. This is a doctrine that will cause fights within. This is a doctrine that on the surface may not make you feel very comfortable. Amen. Amen. But I am telling you and me, we have no other authority than the words of the living God. I asked this in Sunday school class when I used to teach at Stonefort. I said, if everything you've ever learned all your life was in opposition of the Bible, what do you do? Do you cling? to the air for pride's sake or do you surrender to the word of the living God this is something in my life that through hard times and study and whatever it may be to fight against this is futile because it's on every page of scripture And there was a point in my life where I come to that day and say, I can't fight it anymore. I surrender to you, God, and your word, God. And how dare I ever question you based on my feelings? This is serious today. People don't like this. But there's no clear teaching. Let's read this. We have just, let me say this, we have just been told in Romans 8 of the golden chain of redemption. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now, I didn't mention this. I mentioned it on Thursday. I did not mention it on Sunday. Uh, from, From seven pages of handouts, you lose a verse every now and then. But that word foreknew, There's two things that we get from this. Some will say, well, God just looks ahead down the quarters of time to look at what every individual's choice will be. And then therefore, he's waiting on you. He's waiting to see what your response would be. And then based on your response, he would say, oh, I choose you. If you just stop and think about that for one second, does that make any sense to you? Is that a sovereign, omniscient God? Or does that make man sovereign, that his election in salvation is up to you, not him? We say that God is sovereign over all, but when it comes to salvation, no, 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 no. I will tell you again, like I've said before, if God is not sovereign in 100% of all things, if there's 0.001% that he's not sovereign in, then he's not fully sovereign. If he's not fully sovereign, you have no God. God does not look down the quarters of the time and be like, what am I gonna do? I want to I declare the future. I want to declare my own will. Oh, what am I gonna do? I gotta wait for you. Oh, oh, okay. What am I, What are you gonna do? Hang on, Father. We can't we can't do anything just yet. I'm waiting on them to see what they're gonna do. That's so stupid. But that's what we are told. Those who he foreknew. Guess what that word new" means? Well, let me give you some examples really quickly. In the Bible, when it talks about Adam and it talks about his wife Eve, do you know what it says? Adam knew his wife and guess what they did? They had a child. Do you think they just sat there like, let me think really hard about you. Boom, child, no. They knew him in an intimate way. In Amos chapter three, verse two, in referring to Israel of all the tribes of the world, he says, Israel, I knew you. And chose you among the tribes. And then the greatest evidence of this. This word that we see in Romans 8. Of foreknowing. We find that same form of word. In 1 Peter 1.20. And guess who it involves? Jesus Christ. And it says this. He was the lamb. Who was foreknown. Before the foundation of the world. Now. Do we think that the Trinity is in heaven. And saying okay. I'd like to do this. But I'm going to look ahead. And see what Jesus is going to do. I'm up. It's up to him, and then I'm going to see what he's going to decide before he's the, the, the lamb, the slain from the foundation of the world. Would anybody say that? No. That word that we've just mentioned in just a few examples is the same one here. It means to choose. It is to love before. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, you know the rest, he called. It's the effectual call. Those whom he called, it's a guarantee they're justified. And those who are justified, guess what? Your ticket is punched to heaven. You're glorified in heaven. We have just learned that, and now Paul, in overdrive, comes to this point into Jacob and Esau. Let's read these verses, starting in verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Listen to verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then it. He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who resists His will? On the contrary, listen to this. If you're reading this, and you're thinking there's some unfairness to this, He's getting ready to talk to you. (laughs) Who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did this so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. There's so much in those 13 verses, but maybe you can start to get a theme of what is happening here. We're going to dive in after we pray. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful to come to this word, this text, God, because all it screams is you and your mercy. God, let us for never one second in our life think that we have done anything ever to deserve mercy God this is from you it is from you and of you God that's why you tell us that all things are from you and through you and to you and that to you be the glory forever God I pray that you would open our souls today you would open our minds today God that you would just begin to show us the absolute truth of your word and Lord let us surrender to that I pray that you would give me the words to speak. In Jesus' name. Pray that you would help us to understand this doctrine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have looked at the top of your handout here, you will see that there's a quote here from a Swiss theologian named Roger Nicole. And he said this, By nature, we are Pelagian. Does that mean anything to anybody? Probably not. Well, back in the 6th century... There was a, a man called Augustine, and Augustine had an opponent at that time where he debated, and his name was Pelagian. Now here's what Pelagian's theory was. Here's how he thought man was. That man was born neutral, was born even to the good, was born with the ability to choose God at any time because he was not born into this depravity of sin. Now, if you've been here for any of the book of Romans... You will know how unbiblical that is. We are born into sin. We are by nature deserving of wrath. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who does good. So Augustine debated Pelagian. And Pelagian says, we can do it on our own. I don't need God. Human beings in their own ability can do it on our own. And he goes on to labor this point. He says this, he says, but even in our nature now, Every human being is born with a sense of that theory. We are man, we will do. We are man, we don't need God. I, 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 I. And he goes on to say that even after conversion, some of that that holding on to that belief still lingers. Conversion doesn't automatically change that away from you because we all to a sense, most likely, all of us in this room, because this is the way that we have been taught, we at all at some point of our life have believed that it is up to us to do this. The bondage of the will says you can't. The Bible says you can't. So Romans 9 comes along and is going to leave that theory in the dust. It's going to obliterate it. It's going to, be, to crush it. And you know what the glory of this is? That God gets all the glory. What's wrong with a doctrine that gives God glory and sovereignty? Can anyone explain that to me? You can't. Let's read this. It, it, let me say this. There are three ways that we get around Election and predestination. There are three ways in this text that people do it. Number one, it's the easiest, and I've been there. I'm guilty of one. You ready? You ignore it altogether and act like it's not in the Bible. Number one, say, hey, listen, what do you think about predestination election? Well, let's go to uh, Romans 9. What? No, that's not in my Bible. That's, that's one way we get around it. I was listening to R.C. the other day, and he said he, debate, he went on this radio show, and he was debating this guy on this doctrine. And he said, every time I would go to discuss Romans 9, he would quote John 3.16. And he said, for one hour, I tried to get him to talk about Romans 9, and he refused to do it. Because if you honestly listen to the words of Roman, Romans 9, and that's just this chapter, it's all through the Bible, if you believe Romans 9, there's no way you can come across with anything else. So we can just ignore it. Romans 9 is not in our Bible. That's the first way we do it. The second way that people do it is say it's all about a nation. He's talking about nations here. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about other nations. Except for we've got a problem. He's speaking specifically about two individuals here. So we don't see that anywhere in the text that can be validated. And number three is we talked talked about earlier that God looks ahead in time, sees who would say yes to him, And that's who he's referring to here. Again, there's nothing in your sinful human nature and bondage of the will that would ever choose Christ. If we are waiting for Christ to be dependent on us, then that makes man sovereign, not God, and no one's in heaven. Do we want that? No. So now we come to this text. I've got a question mark up there. I don't know how far we'll get. Let's read it. These are the twins... The fact that Paul uses unborn twins, significant, same individuals, not yet born, same birthday, same parents, same environment, everything. Listen to this. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. Let me tell you what that means. So if you look at the Greek here and you begin to break that down, it means they had not done anything good or bad. They had not made a choice. They had not done anything pleasing to God. They had not been born. They were of equalness of their birth. There had been nothing they had done. You see the picture? You can't say, Jacob, oh man, look at you. You live this expository life. And look, you made this great choice for God. And Esau, you didn't know. They were not born. They had not done anything. There was nothing good or bad. But what does it say? That The, the choice is made by and from. So that God's purpose, according to Esau's choice, would stand. No, not what yours says. Let's read it again. So that God's purpose, according to Jacob's choice, would stand. No. What does it say? According to his choice. Do you see? This is where salvation starts. And this is where salvation ends. Jacob can't come to heaven and say, listen, I did all this. Look at what I did. No, 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 no. The fact that he chose Jacob is something that we should marvel at. Because Jacob's name alone means deceiver. Jacob was a conniver. Jacob sold his or tricked his brother out of his birthright. Jacob lied to his dad. Jacob was on the run. There was nothing good in Jacob. So why did Jacob have all this privilege? It was God's sovereign choice. In election. What do you see in Jacob? Well, nothing good. What does he see in you? What could he ever see in you? That the sovereign holy God of the universe would be like, what an amazing citizen. Yes, let me choose her because, boy, she's earned it. No, this doctrine will drive you to humility. This doctrine will drive you to the sovereignty of God. This doctrine will show you that it's of God. Not before. They had, done, they had not done anything good. They had not done anything bad. So that God's purpose, according to His choice, not any action, not any duty, nothing, His choice would stand. Not because of works. Think about this. What could Jacob say? If, if we just looked at the decision of every believer, what could we say? Then it's no longer grace. Because here's what happens. If Taylor makes a choice, then God says, well, you made a choice. So therefore I have to reward you based on what you've done. You've done this. So therefore here you see the difference. If Taylor's doing something to provoke this salvation, then it's something that Taylor's done and it's not a free gift. It is not grace. Grace is given when nothing is due. If God looks at you and your choice, your choice determines your salvation, then it is no longer a free gift of grace. It is looking at her and saying, she did something, so therefore she gets this. That's not how that goes. God looks ahead of time. From foundation, he knows those who are his He foreknew you. He chose you. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. Why? According to His purpose and His choice. Isn't that something? How long has God been God? Well, we don't know. But from the beginning of time, uh, just from He is, right? From all eternity, excuse me, past. Stop just for a second. Do you realize how long God has loved his elect? Think about that. Let's just say in human terms, this this world's been around for 40 hundred trillion years. Just made that up. God has loved you before the earth was even into existence. Do you know how long God has loved his chosen people? We can't fathom that. We can't rationalize our minds around that. Do you know the lengths that he went to redeem his people? He loves his people. I would be curious to see if anybody had a reason why God loves you. We don't have enough time in the day to sit here in silence. Did you do anything for God to love you and to choose you? No. And we see this in one verse. It is clearly, clearly based on God's election and choice. If God is waiting to make a decree based on us, on what an individual will do, then God is dependent on man, which destroys the sovereignty of God. Let me tell you why this is a big deal. You're like, what's the big deal? People will say, it's like, what's the big deal? You know what I am what I've realized this, they may not know they're doing it, but they are destroying the sovereignty of God by words alone. They're not destroying His sovereignty. It's always there. But in a sense, what we say is that God is only dependent on man. God's sovereignty stops where man, His freedom begins. Anybody here want to say that God is not sovereign? Is God waiting on man to make His decrees? Is his choice. Look, we have to look at these words. We're of one verse in Romans 9. It destroys the argument. For they done good or bad, so that God's purpose in cho- choice, says it, right? Choice, right there. The KJV will say God's view of election would stand. Not on works. Why are we saved? Not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace and grace alone. And grace means that you've done nothing to deserve it. And if a choice is what's required to deserve it, then it's no longer a grace. You see that? It's simple. It's not grace if you do something to earn it. Our election is never found in us. This is not of works. That's why he says in Hebrews, or Hebrews, Ephesians, he says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. Think about that, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. If our choice is what determines election salvation, then salvation is no longer grace, but rather it's something God owes you. I don't think so. I'm going to read this really quickly in Ephesians chapter 1, talking about God's good purpose in election. Ephesians chapter 1, which is one of the other most... Um, clear teachings of this. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Here's why. According to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He had made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summoning of all things up in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things, After the counsel of his will. Oh man, oh man, how high we've put man, how sovereign we've made man. For though the twins had not yet been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. We talked about that, the effectual call that God gives. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, guess what he does? He calls. It's a guarantee. This is the effectual call. One minute on this, we talked about it last Sunday, but this effectual call means that it is, has an effect. The effectual call of God is not one for decision. And we had made the examples of the universe. When God, from the beginning of time, He comes and He decides it is now time to create the earth. And He says, earth, be. The earth does not then say, well, let me think about it. Do I choose yes? Do I choose no? You know what the earth did? It was placed exactly where the sovereign decree of God told it to be. When God, before there was light, says, let there be light. That was an effectual call. That wasn't, son, would you like, I'm going to give you the choice, and I'm, please, 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 I need you. Oh, my universe plan is going to be, I don't know what I'm going to do if you say no. I've decreed it, and I've called you into this, son, please shine in the sky. Anybody think that's silly? But when it comes to salvation, we think it's the greatest, We, we disagree with it wholeheartedly. You know, the, you know what the light did? You read Genesis. What happened to the light when he said, let there be light? There was light. Because when the effectual call of God goes out, it is not up for debate. It is effectual in its purpose. We mentioned Lazarus. When Lazarus was in the grave and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus did not say, ah, nah, I don't know. He come hopping out of the grave. What about Paul? Everybody who says, "Oh, Paul, may, we have to make this decision for Christ," as Paul was walking to Damascus to try to murder Christians, Paul was met by what? An effectual call of God Almighty. Paul wasn't like, "Oh, let me think about this. This is great. I'm killing. I'm going on the way to persecute Christians. Let me stop for a second and do I make a decision for Christ?" No, 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 no. God hit him with light, dropped into his rear end, and said, "This is my chosen vessel who will do what I have called him to do." What about Mary? Mary is come and visited by an angel. And what does it say? The power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And what about John the Baptist in the womb? Did he ask for that Holy Spirit to be indwelling in him as he's leaping in the womb? Did he ask for that? Did he make a decision while he was in the womb? No. And he says it's not by any other way, but by the purpose of him who calls. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He calls you. The sheep know the voice and they come. And then they're justified because God gives them the faith to believe. And now they're justified. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus, listen to when? From all eternity. You can't get away from it. It's on every page of the Bible. Titus 3 verse 5 through 7 who has called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose. It's dependent on him who calls. We see this in the golden chain. And believers are not those who have made God's call effectual in their lives but rather those who God his effectual call was made alive to them. From God. Let's go on to verse 12. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, this is significant. Because in ancient times, the older had all the privilege. It had all the, it had everything. This is why, you remember, this is what's going to be predicted here when Jacob tricks Esau and sells him his birthright. He lost everything in that. The the younger should never be serving the older in this historical season. In antiquity, Never. So it's not because he's older that he's picking Es or Jacob. It's actually flipped. It goes against everything. It's like, hey, those who are not Israel, or those who are of Israel, not just of Israel descent. It flips it on its head. And then we come to verse thirteen. Just as it is written, what does that mean? Anybody know what that means? What does that mean when he says it is written? It means that it is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It is written. This Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It does not just mysteriously pop up in Romans 9. It is in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And it's found in chapter 1. We'll get to there. It says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What do you think about when you hear that? What's your visceral reaction? We know, we know that God is a God of love. Isn't this, the, isn't this what we're taught in the, the society today? We, we've talked about this. But here's how we spread the gospel. And this is, I believe this is one of the biggest lies that comes out of the church today. That God loves everyone the same unconditionally. You ever heard that? Hmm. You think that's true? We picture God as a God of only love. Correct? This is what we do. God is love, so therefore God must be love all the time. Do you realize that one of the holiness characteristics of God is that He is angry with sin? Think about that. If a holy God, who the very sight of sin, Habakkuk 1, says this, that God, you are so holy that you can't even look on sin one sin is death in his sight. It could be if he wanted to, to uh, enact justice. What would his response be to something that is so repugnant to his eyes? What would, be, what would be the response to a creature who openly rebels against him? Oh, it's okay. It's good. I love you the same. You know what the pagan thinks about when they hear that God loves me unconditionally? Good. Good good i can do whatever i want he loves me unconditionally we come to this text jacob i loved and esau i hated and the first thing if you if you're honest the first time you ever read that your mind is not drawn to jacob i love we pass over that like it's nothing but our mind goes straight to esau i hated who's talking here The Father is talking. God the Father is quoting this in the Old Testament. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Let me tell you this. I heard a man one time say this. You can tell a lot about our stance in our walk with Christ. Which of those two brothers gets your attention in that sentence? If your mind is drawn to Esau I hated, then you don't know who God is. And if your mind skips over Jacob I loved, you don't know who God is. Because a holy, righteous God will distribute wrath on those who are not His. But the fact that Jacob I loved? You mentioned it. The deceiver, the conniver, the liar, the no good doer. Jacob, you loved? Let me put it to you this way. Is there anyone here that thinks that God deserves them love, owes them love? Anything that you've ever done that God would love you for, and he, has a, he must love me for this. Are you holy? Are you pure? Or have you openly rebelled against the, the creator of this world? See, this is what he's saying. Jacob, I love. That's the most miraculous thing ever. That he would take a rebellious, fallen, sinful creature, And the Holy God would have mercy on him based on nothing he did. That should blow our mind. Not Esau, I hated. You know, there's two things, there's a couple ways we can look at this, and you'll see the two differences here. We may not get much farther than these these verses. So in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, we are there's a form of the word hate that means love less. To love less. Let me give you an example in the Old Testament. It is found in, um, I believe it is in Genesis, where um, it is where uh, Jacob, he loved, um, I believe it was uh, Rebecca more than Leah, and uh, he, he, she felt left out. Um, and she says, oh, you've hated me. Basically this, you, you've hated me, but it didn't mean that he hated her. It meant that he loved Rachel more. He loved Leah less. That's a form of loving less. We also see this in the Gospels where, do you remember when, I think it's in Luke, um, I think it is in Luke 14 maybe, where he says this, uh, 1426, he says, if anyone does not hate his own mother or father or brother or children or sisters is not worthy of me. You remember that? You've heard that? Well, wh- who's the perfection of the law? Christ? How could, how's he going to tell us to literally physically hate our parents when the, co- when the Old Testament and the, the commandments say What? <laughs> Honor your father and your mother. So in this sense, what he's saying is, in this Jewish idiom here, he's saying, listen, you have to love your parents less than me. You have to love your family less than me. It's a love, but you have to love it less. So there are times in the Bible where that's what that means. Well, let's look at Romans 9 in comparison to Malachi 1.3. This context that it's referred in Malachi, it's, it's quoting one of active rejection and destruction this does not appear to be less than. And then we come to this phrase that we've talked on many a times. How many times have you heard this? God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. That's curious because who does he send to hell? This is not the God that we've taught. He sends the sinner to hell. We've got to realize that. I'm going to read you a couple verses here. I'm just going to go quickly. Listen to this in Psalm chapter five, verse four through six. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Do I dare read this in church? Can I? Can I read this next? Can I read it? You hate all who do iniquity. Is that in your Bible? Because it's in my Bible. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 7, verse 11 through 13 says, God is, oh, actually, let me go back to that. After that, you hate all who do it, it, iniquity. He says, you destroy who, all who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors, loathes, detests the man, not the sin, the man of bloodshed, shed and deceit. Then he goes in Psalm 7 and he says this in verse 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God is not, not waiting to the last day to pour out indignation. He is furious and has indignation every day upon the wicked. Remember this in Romans 1, where he says, or Romans 2, where it says they are daily laying up wrath for that great day of judgment? Every sin that an unbeliever does, every sin that is just being piled on on and on and on for a greater wrath on that day. He is angry, he is indignant, he is furious with the wicked. Daily. He says, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has his bow bent and made ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. C.H. Spurgeon says that when God puts the arrow on a target, unlike some of us, he never misses. Psalm 11, verse 4 through 7 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men, which means He's looking everywhere. The Lord detests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, His soul hates. Upon the wicked He rains snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. And in Psalm 95, verse 10 through 14, it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold... Oh, that's the same one. I'm sorry. Excuse me. That's the same one. In Isaiah, he says this. Verse 12 through 14 of Isaiah 1. He's talking about the people that are bringing sacrifices to him. He says, When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts, Bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. Do you see what is happening here? A holy God must hate sin. Let that sink in just for a second. A holy God must hate hate sin If he does not then there's a problem He must hate sin This is what he's showing here and in Malachi here's what he says In verse 1 The oracle of the Lord of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Yet I have hated Esau. I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Through Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant... Forever. That's what he quotes in here in Romans 9.13. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Because Esau in his sin, in his own free will to choose sin, is a detestation to God. And every person that is outside of Christ, that is what is happening right now. The arrow has been put in the bow. It has been pulled back. The the sword has been sharpened. The wrath of God is abiding on you now. John 3.36 says that those who have the Son have life, but those who do not have the Son, the wrath of God remains on them. And you're building it up day by day. Jacob I loved. I called Jacob to myself. I foreknew him. I chose him. I loved him. But Esau, different story. But they were equal. They were born at the same time by the same parents in the same environment. They'd done, not, done nothing different. But Jacob I loved. And he saw I hated. Because of God's servant, sovereign purpose and election. Now let me ask you a question. Does that make you mad? Does that scream? That's not fair. Isn't that the anthem of the Christian world anymore? God blesses someone else. That's not fair. I, I, listen, I'm struggling with this, and that, that pagan is getting this. What do we say? That's not fair. God has to offer salvation to everyone equally. That's not fair if he doesn't. I wonder how many times God gets sick of that sentence. I'm going to say this kindly because I talk to myself. Listen, I've talked to myself in my office the last several months. I'm going to ask you this. Who in the world do you think you are? Who do you think you are and who do I think I am? That the pages of the Scripture teach it. The pages of the Scripture testify it. And we sit here in our feelings and we look up to the throne of heaven and we say, How dare you? I don't like that. So therefore, it must not be. That's dangerous. That is dangerous. Here's the news flash for every human being. God is God. And He is in the heavens. And He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3. Have you ever said that? Have you ever come to just this point of election and predestination and you say, I don't like that. That doesn't feel good to me. God's not fair. If that's you today, listen to this. God knows in your flesh that's going to be your response. And Paul, how many times do you think Paul has spoken on this doctrine? Tons. And you know what a good teacher knows? What the questions are going to come. When they're going to come and where they're going to come. And Paul knows it. And listen to this. If, if any more moment in your life, or even today, currently, if you think that's not fair, if you don't think that's right, Paul, through the help of the Holy Spirit, is getting ready to talk to you. And listen to what he says. See if it's an uplifting message to you. Or tell me if he rebukes you and me, because I've been here. Listen to this. He says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Let me ask you a question. If it was solely based on their choice, why would he say that? If it was up to them, isn't that fair? Give them the choice. If they choose yes, they're in. If they choose no, they're not. If I said to you, listen, you can come up here on stage. Do you choose yes or no? If Taylor made the choice yes or no, would anyone say, well, that's not fair? you say, no, you gave him the choice. She chose. Right? Why after Paul saying that it's not by the one who does anything before they did anything good or bad, before they had made any choice, so to speak, before they were even born, so that God's purpose and election may stand, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and then he comes and says oh, wait a minute, I know what they're going to say. That's not fair. God can't do that. And through the help of the Holy Spirit, here's what he says. He knows it's coming. Have you thought that? Do you think it today? He knows it's coming. Let it sink in. If it's all about man's choice, there would not have been a reason to say, is that unfair? Because that's what we all think is fair. Correct? Do you know that I've, no, I've listened to many men that's been in seminary that has grown up in an Arminian view that have wrestled with Romans 9 and it is that verse alone that has been the, the hump over the other side. They're like, I can't, that's not fair. That's not fair. And then you read and Apostle Paul says, do you think that's unfair? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> what does he say? Is there injustice with God? Or there is no injustice with God, is there? Look what it says. May it never be. you realize if you think that this doctrine is unfair, Paul is rebuking you and I today? Think it's unfair? Think God's unjust? May it never be. How dare you? How dare you think that God is unjust? That's what he's saying here. Who's here going to raise their hand and say that God, that God of all justice is unjust? Anybody want to make that claim? But when we say it's not fair for God to do what He wants to do, we're saying that He's not fair and it's not good, therefore it must be unjust. You see how quickly this gets into a dangerous situation? How it slips away really quickly and before we even know it. God is not unjust. He's the perfect, just, righteous judge of all the world. You ever thought that? That's not fair. I don't like that. I don't like that teaching. I don't like it. Paul knows that, and so does God. And he says, may it never be. I'm going to show you something here. If you look down at the bottom of your page, you have circles. Is there ever an innocent human being? No. There's not one innocent human being. So what would justice be for every sinful creature that openly rebels against the Creator? What what is justice? Hell, okay. And this is justice. Here's what we don't understand. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Human beings in our own flesh say this. How come God doesn't save everyone equally? How does God not save everyone? And you know what the cry from heaven is to the angels, I bet, if I was just to guess. How do you, holy God, even save one? That's because we don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. The fact that God saves one soul is more than what we deserve or he's required to do. Because he's not required to do anything. Let us get that in our minds. He must do this. He must do this. He must do this. He must not do anything that the creature tells him he has to do. You want justice? Every soul in hell has had perfect justice given to them. Let that sink in. There's not one person in hell who's there unfairly. That's not fair. Of course it is. We've made this point. If a child rapist came up before us today... And God said, you have the ability. You let them go or do you keep them? You want to put them in prison or you want to let them free? What's justice? Prison? Am I guaranteed? Do I have to give them mercy? Now, if if I release all pedophiles, does that mean you want me to go to every prison and release every pedophile, put them back into the community? He got justice, correct? If I say prison, he got justice. Why is that so bothersome to people? We scream for justice. We don't want justice for ourselves. Because justice for ourselves is hell as well. Repeat it again. There's not one innocent person in hell. Every person in hell has received and will receive perfect, holy justice. And God, if He he could be just across the board, and every human being that has ever lived, he could place them in hell, and he would be perfectly righteous in doing it. You worthy of heaven? One sin against a holy God is worth hell. You worthy of that? You can't be. No one is righteous. You see the point Paul has labored? No one that is in hell has been treated unjustly. but through God's sovereign purpose and his own will, that God would look down to me who deserves justice. And you know what he would show me? Mercy. That's the difference. He's going to go later and say, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Do you think about that? That your state is hell unless Christ, in his own purpose, has mercy on you. It's going to come down to two factors. You see it. It's either justice or mercy. The unbeliever will have justice distributed to them in hell, and they have no excuse. But those who are in heaven, they've not had justice poured out on them. They've had mercy. If you demand mercy, it's no longer mercy. If you demand grace, it's no longer grace. Me and Zeke were talking the other day. Sorry, Mark. I believe the quote is something like this. There is no innocent people in hell, and, and there is not a, well there's not a person in hell that does not get perfect justice in what they deserved, but every person in heaven has got something they don't deserve. You see the difference? It's unfair. How dare us. You realize that? Every person in hell got what they deserved, and every person in heaven got what they did not deserve. That's what mercy is of all the people that have ever walked this planet. If you are a true, regenerate child of God, from the foundation of the world, before the world began, God chose to have mercy on you. Not because of what you've done, or not because of anything I've ever done, but according to his good purpose, God does not cause us to praise Him. Do you know how dependent we are on Him for salvation? We are our lives to it. We are our eternity to it. This is what He's saying. God doesn't have to show mercy on anyone. It is His sovereign will and choice to show mercy on whom He wants. Verse 16, we'll close here. Let me say something on 15. Can you read 15 and see where it shows that God has sovereign will to have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy on? Of course he does. I'll have mercy on whom I want. Do you think God's mercy has been equally distributed across the Bible? No, well, we're going to talk about Pharaoh. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. Is that the same? No. Does he have mercy on everyone? No. If he wanted to have mercy on everyone, he could. The reason that he doesn't is he has mercy on who he wants to have mercy on because he's God. God. And then Paul goes on to just labor this point a little bit more. In verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills. You know, our, our freedom of the will, slave to sin. It's not the man who wills. You can't will yourself to this on your own. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. It doesn't depend on any of that stuff but on God who has mercy. Do you see the point that Paul's making here? He starts out with Jacob and Esau and says, listen, they weren't even born. They'd not done anything good or bad. And that was to show you that it's God's sovereign choice that stands according to his purpose because he's the one who calls. Then he goes on to say, don't you ever for one second say that God's unfair. Don't. Don't ever say that God is not sovereign. Don't ever say that God is unrighteous if He does this. Don't ever say that God can't be a loving God and do it this way. We have to be very careful with those words. Paul says, there's no injustice, may it never be. He goes on to tell us, He has mercy on whom He has mercy. So it doesn't depend on the man who runs or the man who wills. What's the key ingredient with salvation? But on God has mercy. Let me tell you that. I don't know how you get around it just by reading five verses in Romans 9. Tell me what part of that is you deciding from your own sinful state and God waiting on your decision. Is it okay that God's sovereign? Is it okay? If this is the way that God has chosen to do it who's got a problem with it? A lot of people have a problem with it. Stop for a second as we close. I'm officially closing. There was another thing I was going to add. You can look at it. It's the highlighted in verse 15 on your handout. It is the positive, positive, and the positive, negative. You can read that about how God. Basically, what it means is that we believe that God, every person left to their own devices, if God does not intervene, will continue to sin, and that's the nature they're born with. So God chooses a group of people to have mercy on, and he changes their hearts, and he basically just leaves them, the others alone. He doesn't, he just overlooks them, he overpasses them. He does not actively put evil into their heart to continue to sin. God is not the author of evil. God doesn't put evil in people, the evil is present. So all God has to do is just have mercy on a certain group. Those are the ones that are saved and the ones that he does not choose. He just says, go, go about your own way. Live in your sinful life. Go. And then sometimes we'll learn tonight that God says, I'm going to take the restraint off of you. I'm not adding extra evil into you, but you want to sin. Here you go. And he pulls back his restraint and he gives them over to a reprobate mind, which they've already had. So the whole thing is this. Everybody deserves justice. But nothing you've done. God has chosen you, and He's decided to have mercy on you because He can do what He wants. Then they make you love God. We're going to find out tonight why He does that. Why did He harden Pharaoh's heart? Why does He make some vessels prepared for destruction? And why does He make some prepared for glory? There's a reason. I'm so thankful. That it does not depend on me. Because if we want it to depend on our decision, I'll see you in hell. Every one of you. God is not waiting on me. He's not, not, uh, His sovereign decree is not based on me. He is God. And I'll close with this last statement. We've talked about it. But if God... By the end of the day, placed every one of us in hell. Do you know what we'd have to say? You were perfectly just in doing that. Because we don't know who we are. Give me salvation. Demand it. i got to have it. I'm earned. I'm entitled. No, you're not. We have to revisit what mercy is and what grace is. It is not of yourself. How much clearer can it be? It's going to continue to get more clear tonight. that God would love you, that He would call you, not because of you, but because of His mercy. That's almost too good to put into words. It's almost too fathomable to think. This is what Paul is trying to tell us. The doctrine of election is real. It is through this text, hard, 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 but it is through every text of the Bible. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. If He has saved you, it's not you. Praise Him. You've done nothing. You couldn't bring anything to Him. But He would just reach down and have mercy on you. Is God unjust? Oh, no, no, no. No. He's perfect and righteous. I'm going to read this last verse. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. I said I was going to read one more thing. This is a quote. From R.C. Sproul, he says this. Even when we struggle, even when we do not fully comprehend the mystery of God's sovereign will, you ever been there? Let that not lead us into blasphemy. Even though we may not fully grasp it, let us be careful to never say things that are blasphemous. Like God he not do anything unless you tell him he can. That God is not sovereign. Be careful. Be careful. And he goes on to say this. Um, here's what he says. You are required as a Christian. Listen to our standard as we close. You are required to believe, to preach, and to teach. What the Bible says is true. Comma. Not what you want the Bible to say is true. You see the difference? Now we come to this day. We come to just this first half. The golden chain is a proof enough. All the texts of the Bible are proof enough. But now you've heard the truth of God. Written out, verse by verse, exegeted through. Now, what do you do? Do we believe what we think feels good to us? Or do you surrender yourself to the sovereign, holy God and the truth that are in His pages? That's your choice today. You walk out of one of two ways. You believe that God has chosen from the foundation of the world or you believe that the Bible speaks otherwise and you walk out. I don't know how you get around it. Unless you rip those pages out and refuse to ever read them. To God be the glory. Amen. I want to sing this song as we close. It is.